This morning's reading is from 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 9, and 1 Samuel 22, 1 through 2. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, and there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from from before the Lord, to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. 1 Samuel 22, 1-2 David departed from there and escaped to the cave Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. Thank you, Jamie. Uh, Isaiah 40 tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Uh, Again, I'm glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, My name is Daniel, and I'm one of the pastors, and uh, really, really glad that you uh, have chosen to be with us. If you're a first-time guest, I want to repeat what Timothy said. Uh, we really are grateful that you're with us. And if you just started coming, uh, we hope that you'll come back and you find our community be a place uh, of welcoming and hospitality and warmth to you. If, uh, this is your first time. We are uh, in a series in the life of David that we started a number of weeks ago. And the, the story of David in First and Second Samuel is the longest single narrative in the whole Bible. In fact, it's one of the longest narratives in all of antiquity. And I started this series a a few weeks ago by saying that the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is a single story about God's redemptive work. It's a story about God's salvation, this gospel, this good news of God's work in the world. And the main character of this story is not us, it's Jesus. Uh, And God, who is authoring this story, invites us into it, to participate in this story. And and so if you're a Christian here this morning, this salvation story, this gospel is to be the lens in which we interpret our life, not what we often do, interpreting the story with our life. Uh, And so uh, we pick up this morning, as Jamie just read in chapters 21 and 22, and, and so far in 1 Samuel in the life of David, we saw in chapter 16 that David was anointed king uh, who would replace Saul as king of Israel. In chapter 17, he defeats Goliath, uh, the God-defying giant. 
We looked last week at David's relationship with Jonathan in chapters 18 through 20, this friendship covenantal relationship that they had that protected and bracketed David in the midst of some of his most dark and difficult times. And those dark times came because Saul was attempting to murder David. Uh, And Timothy preached on two weeks ago the jealousy of Saul towards David. And, And so six times Saul attempts to murder David. And in chapters 21 and 22, we see David on the run. David's on the run. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump in to our passage this morning. If you will, let's pray together. God, I I thank you that you're with us this morning. Uh, And Lord, um, I pray that uh, you would captivate our thoughts and our hearts. You would draw us to yourself this morning. Wherever we are and however we come into this place this morning, I pray that your spirit would speak to the spirit of each person here, and that you would draw us to yourself, Jesus, that we would encounter a living God, we would see Christ clearly and experience you and be drawn to you and be changed because you've spoken to us. Would you remove me, I'm the one who preaches, so that Jesus is exalted and clearly seen, and not only seen, but experienced. We pray you would do that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me start off this morning by asking you a question. When life gets hard, when times are dark, when you feel sad, afraid, alone, ashamed, guilty, where do you run? Where do you run? When a family member gets sick or passes away, or your marriage is rocky, or a child is rebellious, or when you want to be married or have a child, and it seems like all you can do is wait, and life doesn't appear to be the way you hoped it would be, or when you can't find a job, or your job's in question, or you're being criticized at your job, or the same could be said for your classes, or when you're just tired and it feels like your personal tank is on empty, where do you run? You know, every one of us, in the words of Bruce Springsteen, or the title of a great book that came out around 10 years ago, were born to run. All of us were born to run. King David, for a moment, was in a sweet place. He's in a comfortable place. The anointed king defeated the giant, multitudes singing his praises, but now David is threatened, and he's scared, and he's confused. Feels like his world is pushing in on him, and so David runs. He runs for his life. His life, not his wife, if if it sounded like that. He runs for his life. So let me ask you again. When you feel threatened, attacked, your world seems to be pushing in on you. Where do you run? Every one of us has been running this week. But I want to call you this morning to heed the words of a North Carolina band, the Avett Brothers, when they sing, when you run, make sure you run to something and not away from something. You see, when life gets hard and dark, and most of us experience that, we've been conditioning ourselves to run away from pain, to run away from the emotional torment we experience. We run away from the darkness, and we run to success at work, or success in the classroom, or success as a parent. We can run to social activism and social good, and we can run to sex be it fantasy or actual relationship. We can run to food, alcohol, or drugs. We can run to money or power. We can run to Netflix 
and binge watch four to five episodes. We can run to video games and approval from others. It can be a number of things, and some of the things I mentioned are bad things in themselves, and some are good things that become bad things because of how we use and treat them. The point is we have conditioned ourselves that when times get dark and our world seems to be pushing in on us to run away from pain, to run away from our emotional torment to something we think we can control or something that we think will numb the pain for a moment. I want you to see this morning from our passage that David shows us that when we run, we need to run to something. And he shows us three things to run to. The sanctuary, the cave, and community. The sanctuary, the cave, and community. Let's look first at the sanctuary. We see this in chapters 20, chapter 21, verse 1 through 9. David, again, is on the run. He knows for certain that the intent of King Saul is to murder him. Six assassination attempts. If that, if that wasn't enough, Saul's son and David's covenantal friend Jonathan tells him for sure that his father Saul wants him dead and that there is now a price on David's head. So David runs to Nob, where there is a sanctuary and a priest. And he arrives at Nob, and he is desperate for his physical life. And he enters the sanctuary, and he realizes something. He realizes he needs more than physical help. He needs help in maintaining a God-dominated imagination. He needs help in living out God's calling on his life, and he finds that help in the sanctuary. Eugene Peterson says a sanctuary is a place of paying attention to God, a place where the truth of God is preserved and honored, a place of remembering the events in which God has been clearly active and powerful. It's a place to stop and to behold and remember God. It's more than just a cathedral or a church building, though I think architecture is important, and this place is quite beautiful that we get to worship in. Sanctuary, though, what Peterson is saying, it's a place where one is immersed in holiness, where we remember God's not like us. He is above us and over all things, all-powerful, all-loving, all-beautiful, almighty, all-holy. There could be a number of things that immerse us into holiness. A mountaintop, a sunset, a song, a poem, a painting, a flower, a child's laugh. Now, I'm not saying that God is in the mountaintop and he's in the sunset. That would be pantheism, where we are not pantheists at Christ Central Church. But I do want to tell you that the creator of these things has gifted us with them to remind us who he is. Let me give you a little insight into my life. When life gets hard for me, circumstances are pressing, I feel emotionally stretched, I'm tempted to run away by running to a number of things. More often, I'm tempted to run to my own ability to fight and work hard and to press through and to keep going. When life presses in, I'm tempted tempted to run to my control and my ability to fight through. And what David is showing us here is that when you run, run instead into a place of beholding God and forgetting self. A place where God is so grand that you don't even think about yourself a place where we behold the goodness, truth, and beauty of God. When I first moved to the Triangle in 2008 to be a campus minister in Chapel Hill, 
I would meet with a 60-year-old pastor almost every two weeks. I think I've shared this years ago. But in one of our first meetings, he asked me a very convicting question. He looked at me and, and seeing my constant push and press in life, and he said, Daniel, when was the last time you were overwhelmed by beauty? And I was stumped by that question because I could talk about beauty. I could preach about the need for beauty. <laughs> I could appreciate beauty. But the way he phrased the question stumped me. When was the last time you were overwhelmed by beauty? See, to be overwhelmed, you have to allow yourself to stop. You have to sit and behold. You can't just glance at beauty and be overwhelmed by it. You have to sit and remain in it. And I, I thought when he asked, and honestly, it can still be my response today, man, I don't have time to sit and be overwhelmed by it. <laughs> I have a lot of work to do. I have ministry to be a part of. People to meet with, sermons to prepare, direction of the church to set. Right? And when I'm healthy and trusting God, my family is above all those things, to love and care for them. And so I don't have time to just sit and remain in beauty. Listen, on the whole, I would say we are a busy, busy church. And by church, I mean all of us who make up this church. We're a busy people with very little margin in our life. We have friends and family and school and jobs and activities and children's activities. Which is why I think some of the best pastoral counsel that I can give to myself and to our staff team and to most of you is just to stop. Just stop doing so many things. Stop and behold God and go take a painting class. Go plant a garden. Go to a music concert. Go tour the Nasher Museum. Go walk the Duke Gardens and, or the Eno River. Wake up early and view the sunrise. But you have no time, you say. We make time for the things we think are important. We just do. And I want to tell you that there is nothing more important than stopping and beholding God and beauty. To sit in places that make you forget yourself and know how great God is. Now you might be thinking, as I was when we read, when I was reading 1 Samuel 21, uh, David deceives Ahimelech, right? This man, the anointed king who defeats the giant. Now he's a deceiver. If you weren't here when we launched into this series, I think this is a good place to remind us that David isn't a moral model to copy. In the company of David, this is why I, I love the story of David, in the company of David, we find someone who does it as badly or worse than we do, but who in the process of living doesn't quit, doesn't withdraw from God. David isn't the ideal life. He's an actual life, and that should be encouraging to us. So, Next, we see David entering the sanctuary. He's hungry, and he's defenseless. And while in the sanctuary, Ahimelech the priest gives David the holy bread and the sword of Goliath. David entered this holy place and was reoriented to who God was. And in this place, he remembered God's anointing upon him, God's power in helping him defeat the giant, God's provision of the covenant friendship with Jonathan. As he ate the bread and was girded with the sword, God was reminding David who God was and the promises to David. See, God uses beautiful places and beautiful things to remind us who he is. But there is one holy place 
that is like no other that God has ordained to use. And it's the sacred assembly of God's people on the Lord's day. The gathering of God's people, His church, on this day, Sunday. When life is hard and circumstances are difficult and you're emotionally stretched, do not withdraw from God. Don't run away from Him, but lean into God. And the one place God promises to be present in a special way, the one place where the good and the true and the beautiful should be experienced is in the corporate worship of God's people, His church. We need the Lord's day. We have no time, you say. Work is busy. I've got to travel, either for work or for fun. Sometimes I just want to sleep in. We make time for what we think is important. And honoring this day is deeply important, so important that God gives it as one of the Ten Commandments, the fourth of the ten. Now, some have asked along the lines of uh, my years of ministry, well, Daniel, what should I look for in a church? When I was doing campus ministry and even now, what, what should I look for in a church if it's that important? Let me point you back to our passage and to David. Look for a church where you can enter hungry. Where you can enter hungry. And the leaders and the pastors of the church give you the holy bread and the holy wine, the sacrament of the Lord's table, where you can come to this table and be reminded that the Christian life's not about your doing. It's about Christ doing, His body broken, His blood shed. This table, the Lord's Supper, is a place of reorientation and remembering God's faithfulness to you. Second, look for a place where you can enter defenseless like David, defenseless. And then the leaders and the pastors of the church give the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, Paul tells us that the sword of battle for Christians is the Word of God. You should look for a church that teaches and preaches and is faithful to the Word of God. You should leave a Sunday morning feeling more girded with the truth of God and armed for the battle that lies ahead. And I will say this, that does not have to be Christ Central Church. There are many churches that do this. Of course, we would love for you to, this to be your church, but look for a church that faithfully does this. David leaves the sanctuary. and He is reminded about who God is, but soon again we see him running for his life. C.S. Lewis says that the Christian life functions on the law of undulation. There's times of emotional mountaintop experiences and then times of deep valley shadows of doubt. Right? David goes from being renewed in the sanctuary to again fleeing on the run in the wilderness. And the next place we see David run to is the cave. We see David run to the cave in chapter 22, verses 1 to 2. David, in a dark, dank cave, this promise to be the king, anointed to be the king, now the fugitive who's, who's been abandoned by everyone around him, he's in this cave, no wife, no job, all alone, not looking quite like a king. And I'm sure David is asking, is God good? Is God for me? Is God present? Have you spent time in a cave? An emotionally dark, on my face, in fear kind of a cave? Where you've wondered, why am I here? What is God doing? Is God for me? Some of you may be in a cave this morning. Now here's the truth. We're not good at caves. 
We're not good at being in darkness. Most of us have a Kleenex theology versus a cave theology. Right? We don't like to suffer. We want to wipe our tears away with aloe-scented Kleenex versus learning that suffering is actually a requirement for Christians in the kingdom of God. Heard one pastor say, David didn't choose the cave. It wasn't an elective, but it was required curriculum. See, Scripture is clear that suffering is a requirement for maturing and deepening in the Christian life. Israel, in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was led into the wilderness for 40 days. Actually, the Scriptures say that it was the Spirit of God that drove Jesus into the wilderness. God will drive us into the wilderness and into the cave as well. There will be times in your life when God's presence isn't felt. And you'll question the nature of God. And what the Lord is doing here, He's taking us deeper into what faith in Him really is. For the possibility of saying no to God actually makes the yes of faith more real. When we're not in the cave, it's easy to believe. But when we doubt when we question and when we have pain, yet still believe our faith is strengthened. And we love God for who He is, not what He gives us. Eugene Peterson again writes this, The cave is a bad place, but leads to a good place. It's the dictionary where David learned the meaning of the word refuge. If we allow ourselves to have Kleenex theology, it only weakens us. We won't know how to suffer We won't lean into the darkness. We'll look to flee. We'll want comfort and not the cross. But suffering is a requirement for the Christian. It's in the dark places and remaining in the darkness where we love God for who He is, not what He gives. We learn to trust Him as our refuge and not in our circumstances. It's in the cave where one gains a knowledge of need. Church, we need a cave theology. David runs to the cave, remains in the darkness, and finds himself surrounded by a community in verse 2. This is the third place David runs to. Not just the sanctuary, not just the cave, but he runs to community. So in difficulty, pain, enter into our life, we're prone to want to just be left alone. We want to hide. We want to pretend. But David, in the midst of this, finds himself surrounded by people. Look again at verse 2. Look who's with David in the cave. Friends, those in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul. (laughs) That's a different kind of community. That's not a put-together, cleaned-up, combed hair, shiny shoes, new clothes type of a community. This is a ragtag group of people who are dissatisfied with King Saul and therefore are gathering around a different king, King David. That, my friends, is the church. And it's a healthy church. I've shared before, but in seminary, one of my professors made us go to an AA class, or an AA meeting, and observe the meeting, and then write a paper, writing a paper, comparing AA with the church. Here's an excerpt from my paper. Jim, a heavyset guy, stood up while smoking a cigarette and said that the topic should be the first step of the 12 steps since there were many new faces in attendance. Three of us from seminary went to the, to the meeting. Didn't know who we were, just 
saw us in attendance. Then he says, the first step of AA is to realize that, that you are powerless and to overcome the addiction, uh, that you are powerless to overcome the addiction by yourself. And then everyone shared their story of powerlessness. And they never pressured us to share our story. We closed the meeting by circling and holding hands and saying the Lord's Prayer. And then we repeated, come back, come back, come back. Church, isn't this the way we should look? A gathering of people who all confess we have a problem. Warmly welcoming others into our community who also have a problem calling out and listening to a God who is powerful enough to heal and save us and then encouraging each other to come back, come back. The community of believers in Jesus is not a community that should try to theologize pain away, but a community that can enter into pain with one another. And I'm afraid that we as a community of Christians on the whole tend to be more like Job's friends in the Old Testament book of Job. We want to interpret one another's pain versus engaging in the pain of the other. Henry Nouwen said we tend to be healed wounders when we need to be wounded healers. We all should realize and confess that we are, verse 2, the ones in distress. We are the ones in debt. We are the ones dissatisfied. The community of Christians should be the safest place to doubt and be in distress. All willing to share our stories of powerlessness, calling each other to come back every week. You know, just like it's easy to believe in God when you're not in a cave, it's easy to live in a community with the devout. But what about living in a community with the undevout and the struggling and the cave dweller? We're only being a true Christian community when we live together as cave dwellers, confessing, I have a problem. You see, Jesus came and he lived among the prostitute, the sinner, the leper, the poor, the dissatisfied. Those who had a problem gathered around Jesus. I don't know about you, but I get tired, and I'm a pastor, and I get in this Christian subculture. I get tired of Christians and Christian communities that put off the ethos of togetherness. They're always together, they're always passionate, always devout, always trusting God, always happy. That's just not the actual life. I want Christ Central Church to be a community of people that can come together and feel the freedom to be honest. If you're sad, be sad. If you're discouraged, welcome. If you feel joy, raise your hands in singing and and worship. If you don't agree with what we sing or pray, don't feel the pressure to sing it or pray it. I really do pray that we are a ragtag community. that we are dissatisfied with the kingdom of this world. A group of people that run to a place of reorientation. We run into holiness, beholding God. That we're cave dwellers who remain in the cave as we mature in our faith. And and we are a confessing community that gathers around a different king, Jesus, who is the captain over us, who is the one we gather around, And where did Jesus go when times got hard for him? When Jesus was emotionally stretched and the world was pushing in on him, he didn't withdraw from his father, but from the world and into his father's presence. Jesus would often go to a place where he could behold his father and be reminded of his presence. Jesus, the Last Supper, instituted a meal of remembrance 
took the bread and he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup. This cup is poured out for you as the new covenant in my blood. It is a meal of reorientation. And shortly after Jesus instituted that meal, he would rise up and he would run to the cross, not to a place of comfort, but to a place of suffering. And then he would be buried in a cave. Our king, our captain, was a cave dweller. And he came out of the cave triumphant and now reigns as king over all. And he offers all of us an invitation this morning. Come, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, anyone who knows they have a problem. Church, we were born to run. And so when you run, make sure you run to something. Not away from, run to Jesus. He is our holy king that reorients us. He is our cave-dwelling king that understands the way up is down. The way of maturity and triumph is through suffering. And he is our king that gathers around himself the bruised and the broken and the tired and the dissatisfied. He is our captain. And he will lead us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would turn our eyes upon Jesus. Turn our hearts to look and to see Jesus. In a world of pain, in a world of struggle, in a world of strife, I know that people here this morning feel like they're in a cave. And I know as we look at our world, uh, Lord, it can feel like there's darkness. But I pray that we would behold you and know that your God is doing something about the brokenness in our world. We would know that that actually in that darkness, you are taking us deeper into relationship with you. And you're calling us to do that with one another, not alone, but in community. Pray you would bless your word and the table as we come defenseless and as we come hungry. Would you feed us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.